Welcome to Velocast Tech in partnership with Cycle Systems Academy. We're joined again by Dimitris Kitsanis, designer for Pinarello in British Cycling. And Dimitris, you must be very happy today with one of your bicycles crossing the finish line first yesterday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always very good to see one of your bikes, you know, going first, you know. And, uh, you know, in my mind, I'm always going, yeah, yeah, it's all about the bike, you know. Yeah, somebody has to push the pedals, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe not quite like this, but, uh, yeah, it's always good. Sean, last time, because it was about a time trial, I I hogged the limelight a wee bit. I'm going to leave it more in your hands today. What have you got to talk to Demetrius about? I've got a few main things I wanted to look at. Um, one was the, the cobbles, when we look at the cobbles, bikes and the tech there. Um, two is climbing and what's happening with climbing. Um, and there's a few bits and bobs I wanted to see um, what's, what's hanging off the bikes. But I did want to start off um, just looking a bit at um, Cervelo. Not been a great tour for Cervelo. And there's a few things that have popped up in my strange world which is all about bikes mostly you know i'm I'm sort of outside don't know what's going on in the real world (laughs) my little (laughs) bicycle world and um cav obviously uh missed the time cut yesterday and i like the way he rode in rather than got got off his bike yeah but i did hear second hand i've not found it printed but i did hear that he'd been complaining about his cervello bike and wishing he was on avenge a bit like gavaria and sagan and obviously people are rightly saying it's not as if he's losing just because of the bike. But, you know, sprinters, it's all about the mind and psychology. And if he's not happy with the bike, it's going to be quite important. Um, Bosenhag and Cervelo broke yesterday. And he actually got on one of your bikes. Did you see that? The Team Sky gave um, Eddie a bike to finish the stage on. Oh, right. I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah, no, so... He- he, he got a penalty. I think he got a two-minute penalty at the end. But I yeah, you cannot. Quite... You, yeah, you cannot do. You cannot uh, get like uh, if you get uh, support or something like this from uh, a team which is uh, your opponents and so on. You know, you're not supposed to do that. You remember, you know, a few years back uh, the incident with. Uh, Richie Porter that uh, some other uh, Aussie rider. Oh, Simon Clark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, actually. I remember last year um, Cav talking about he was doing well in spite of a five-year-old bike. And I didn't really appreciate until you and Sean and I started talking, Demetrius, about how mm. these small increments in aero bikes can make a big difference. So five years is an age in design, isn't it? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, to be fair. <laughs> but uh, you do have... Uh, there are incremental changes and improvements. Uh, no, uh, Can I just... Uh, just go back a little bit on the Cervelo. I I would think this problem uh, that happened with uh, the, the bike braking, I wouldn't say... Uh, I, I don't want to blame Cervelo or anybody else. Uh, in fact, probably what happened was that uh, during the cobbles, probably he had a bit of a problem on that bike. Maybe he cracked it or he crashed or whatever. And maybe he had uh, he had a crack on the frame that he was he went undetected, mm-hmm. and that probably grew during the next stage until it cracked mm-hmm. off the bike completely. I think it's unlikely that there was a bike that was off the shelf brand new and it cracked. Probably got like a, a tumble somewhere or like a, too much stress on the cobbles, and then that developed into a full crack and it broke. Uh, I very much doubted that it was something that it was just like a, an off-the-shelf bike just went on and broke. 
I'm, yeah. I'm defending I'm defending manufacturers in general over here, of not Chevelle yeah. or anybody else. <laughs> that actually brings something to my mind. I mean, when we look at a steel bike, it degrades very gracefully. You know, it bends before it breaks. Carbon, when it does fail, fails catastrophically. How much leeway do you build into your bike designs in terms of durability? Um, yeah, you do have. Uh, I mean, today's this, the the tests that you have uh, for a bike to pass. They are actually quite strict. Back in the old days of the steel bikes and so on, there was nothing like this. Uh, today, the ISO standard it has quite a few severe tests that it is with uh, fatigue and impact that the uh, frame, not only frame, in fact, pretty much every every component of the bike has to go by, has to go through in order to qualify. And uh, there is quite a lot of leeway built in. Uh, easily something like a, a bike that survives under one of these pro riders, it will probably never fail under a, a normal rider like, uh, like the average uh, uh, rider on, on the bunch and mm -hmm. so on that goes on a Sunday race. And the, re the reason for that is the, the, the testing that you have to do on a bike today uh, it makes the bike a lot, a lot stronger comparing to 15 or 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there was literally nothing. When I started with uh, doing the job with British Cycling in 2002, uh, there was no ISO, no EN standard uh, whatsoever. And uh, you had to design, in effect, uh, from scratch with no, no guidance. Today, you have some pretty good guidance of what are the loads and uh, the conditions the bike has to survive. So today, but today's bikes, are significantly better than what it used to be. And it, it is what I do keep saying both to my students and when I get a chance online is, I think if for a consumer, it's the golden age for bicycles. What you get for your money, whether it's mountain bikes, road bikes, commuting bikes, it, it's breathtaking. It really is incredible. Yeah. Um, just, to, just to wrap up on the whole Cervelo thing that keeps on popping up, um, I follow David Miller through his whole career. And obviously, mm. remember back in 2000, he was, I think, the only British rider in the tour, maybe uh, very few British riders in the tour. And of course, mm. he took yellow that year. And what was amazing watching Miller ride is he, he rode some terrible bikes, you know, mm. aluminium decathlon frames. I <laughs> uh, remember one year, aluminium MBK frame. And imagine the oppositions on Carnagos and all sorts of things. And there's a lovely new podcast I have found called Home Roads, where they do the Jack First and rolling interviews and chat to people while they're rolling. There's a great one with Nico Roach. But there's one with Dave Miller in uh, Girona. And they said, well, what was your least favorite bike? My ears pricked up. So I actually asked Dave Miller this while he was still a pro. And he says, I can't say because I'm still a professional. So I wait till I've retired. <laughs> and... Um, of all the bikes he rode, he said the least favourite was the Cervelo. I take it you've been upset by Gerard Truman or something in the last week's show. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I have to say, uh, I was always uh, holding Cervelos as some of the better bikes out there. Maybe, maybe not as good as the Pinarellos and, of course, the ones that we do, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I still, I was always holding them as uh, like pretty good bikes, to be fair. 
It's funny, actually. I, I genuinely think they might have uh, stagnated a wee bit after Gerard moved on to, you know, the yep. open project yep. that he's working on now. Although there was the partnership with White, I always got the feeling that Gerard was the driving force behind that. I remember interviewing him a few years ago, and I stupidly asked him, you know, when they were doing the Project California bike, which was at the time, I think, 765 grams or something for the frame set, if he could make a lighter bike. And he just said, of course you could. You'd just use less material, but you wouldn't want to ride it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, weight, weight is not everything. Maybe for climbing, weight is important. And in fact, uh, the interesting fact is that uh, when you go into a climbing uh, stage or, or when you're going up on a mountain, for the average rider like uh, you and me and everybody else, weight is quite important. For the pros, uh, even aero is quite important going up the mountain because these guys, they're going up the mountain at 30 or 35 kilometers an hour. Mm. I'll probably not go 35, 30 kilometers or 35 kilometers an hour on the flat. <laughs> but these guys, they're going at this kind of speeds uphill. So for them, aero is actually uh, quite important even on the uphill. Uh, whereas uh, for most other people, when you're going uphill and you're going 20 kilometers an hour, Aero is becoming less important, so it's slightly different the game for the pros, and slightly different for the average rider. In fact, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I said to our listeners just yesterday actually that if you watched a a pro who, you know, according to to popular wisdom, couldn't climb climb uphill, they still go far faster than you know even a very good amateur. It's just oh, yeah, scary yeah. how fast these guys climb. One thing I wanted to tackle, which you sent to us in the document, Sean, is when you were working for British Cycling, Demetrius, famously the bike was available to purchase because it had to be under the rules for, what, £100,000 or something. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I, I can buy two with what we make on the Velocast every week. Um, oh, right. Yeah, and I wish. Um, one thing that struck me is we've got Chris Froome using a, a custom 3D printed chain catcher. We've seen amazing 3D printed handlebars. Now all of these small custom things which are very easy to do with modern technology, how do, how do you satisfy the UCI rules about public availability with those? Well, the, the, the parts are available on the uh, Pinarello catalogue. Now Pinarello they do have uh, they, they make available the 3D printed parts and uh, I can tell you a little secret. We're actually manufacturing these days some of these parts for a Pinarello customer because they actually ordered them. Oh, that, that, yeah. that's really interesting because, you know, I, Sean, you and I were talking about this and it, it's, it's easy to see with modern technology how you could drive parts fa forward faster than you could make them available. But of course, with websites and stuff, you can make them available very quickly. Yeah, yeah. The, the, these parts, the, the 3D printed parts are actually available. Now, people, they think because they are 3D printed and so on, they're not available. They actually are. As I said, we're just about finishing uh, an order for some 3D printed parts, metal 3D printed parts. They are ordered by a customer to Pinarello and uh, because they are actually available. So, yeah, they are available. So I just wanted to, um, to look at those for this year, Dimitris, because what we've seen online from last year is both Chris Room and Grant Thomas had some 3D printed titanium bars mm -hmm. and we've seen the 3D printed chain catchers and of course mm -hmm. the amazing time trial cockpit also 3D printed titanium. Mm -hmm. So what's new for the for Team Sky this year in terms of the 3D printed uh, jewellery? 
Um, the, the titanium bars that you see on the time trials are actually out there for a number of years. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I don't think there's anything new on that. So the, the, what, is, what is new is that more riders, they have them now. And they are also, like as I said, they're actually available uh, to purchase and so on. Don't ask me about the prices because you have to ask Pinarello directly about the prices. Uh, there are also some other parts uh, that uh, nobody actually noticed so far. Mm. So I, I cannot let the rabbit out of the hat yet. Okay. <laughs> so there are some other uh, parts out there that they are brand new. And uh, I will have to wait till somebody noticed them. And uh, yeah. then it would be interesting we can talk about that. Yeah, I did think that was funny looking through some of the tech galleries and they've missed it. So let's jump on to then on the, the Paris-Roubaix tech because, Demetrius, we were just having a quick chat before John came on and looking at this huge Paris-Roubaix stage, which was obviously tremendous fun for us watching at home. Wonderful. <laughs> um, I was actually at work on my own. I was um, stripping out e-bikes and rebuilding them just to get ready for my lessons. And I had it on the big screen. You know, it's amazing to watch. But in terms of the bikes, what's really interesting is if you looked at a Paris-Roubaix uh, tech gallery from, say, 10, 15 years ago, you'd see cyclocross bikes and custom mm. this, custom that. But as Demetrius said, looking at the tech gallery, apart from bigger chain rings, at the front, bigger inner ring, double wrap bar tape, the odd rider on cross top levers. There's not a lot different now, is there, in the tech? You know, everyone's on 28 mil tires. Yeah. It seems to me that uh, the development of the bikes for Paris Roubaix either, um, either manufacturers that cannot find many improvements here and there or the improvements that you find, they may be too costly. Like for argument's sake, if you remember uh, 20 years ago or so, when the, maybe more than 20 years ago, when you had the rock socks forks, mm. they start appearing and uh, you had Bianchi going on with uh, full suspension bikes <laughs> and so on. Uh, it is 20 never, years ago, Demetrius. We're getting old. It is, actually. Yeah, black, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when these things first appeared, you had Yankee and so on that they were racing with full suspension bikes and uh, rock shocks forks on the front. And you may say they didn't quite catch up because they were there was a disadvantage somewhere. Uh, I would say that probably the weight and uh, maybe, I don't know, I'm not quite sure really to be fair what was the disadvantage of the uh, full suspension fork. But, you know, mm. today everybody is actually like obsessed with the weight. I think cycling, road cycling was also always obsessed with weight. And that is probably a main driving factor. And uh, this is why you don't see too many bikes with suspension. There are a few bikes out there, like, you know, the uh, Team Sky, they race with the K10 bikes with the suspension on the back. Mm. Uh, you have a number of other bikes, like some of the treks and so on, that they have some sort of form of suspension with uh, flexing uh, some members of the frame and so on. Um, I know Lapierre, they actually tried a few things in the past. I'm not quite sure really if they're using them nowadays. But uh, I think it's probably the obsession with minimum weight that actually holds these things back. I, I can't really think much else, to be fair, because uh, if you do have suspension, you do go faster over the cobbles. Maybe you go slower somewhere else, and maybe the pros, that's why they don't like it. But, uh, yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. Maybe it's the weight. 
It's interesting. Well, Sorry, Sean. When we were talking to to Scott Drawer um, about mm. innovation in the sport, um, he brought up things like um, variable tire pressure for different sections of the course. I think there's innovation mm. to be made, but the basic bicycle frame, um, although you know you with your aero aero developments and comfort and decay series and that sort of thing can make big differences, it may be that technology is where the future is, as opposed to actual physical design. You know, using uh, you know changes in tire pressure, yeah, changes yeah. in seating position, that kind of thing might be the way forward. Yeah, yeah. let me give you a little story. In 2012, we did come up with an idea on how to change the tire pressure on uh, the mountain bikes mm. because the 2012 uh, mountain bike race uh, in London it had uh, a reasonably large section on smooth uh, tarmac. Uh, maybe, maybe I don't remember if it was tarmac, but it was like smooth surface. Mm. And uh, the, we had an idea on how to go on and uh, actually change the pressure, not just control it remotely, like the, you're increasing and decreasing the pressure. And uh, then we never really put it into practice because the technicalities of developing it, it was actually quite a long project. So the technology is out there. It's just like uh, somebody to put together. There will be some weight penalty. But uh, you may do have uh, some improvements on the overall performance. Um, you know, so it's, it's, not, it's not new, it's not new, that's what I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm always banging on to people that the tyres and the tyre pressure is one of the biggest performance differences a lot of people can make to their bikes. Mm. Now, watching that Roubaix stage and watching Bardet puncture repeatedly and then bizarrely his DI2 gears weren't set up properly, I bet someone got told off for that. But it did really make me reflect on the fact that a bike is as a bike was 100 years ago. Mm. And it's a bit nuts, really, that someone can go out on a six grand e-bike or a 10 grand Pinarello F10 and get a puncture, you know? And the, the, the drivetrain is this exposed, um, you know, sort of machine, as it were. Yeah, and roller chain. Around and the cables stretch. It, it, it does seem that with the technology we've got available and what we've been seeing at the trade shows with, say, ceramic speeds, really low friction shaft drive, I'm, I'm, I'm really sort of gasping, as it were, for that next leap where you can get on a bike and it just works, you know, and it, it doesn't even necessarily need people like myself to be tinkering with it every week to keep it working. Yeah, I don't know, really. Um, I had the same idea, you know, sometimes. You know, I was thinking, oh, same idea. I was thinking about similar things. You know, you have quite a few times, like, technology that we think it is new, it is actually pretty old and, uh, you know, it's going on. Like, I always had this argument, you know, do you want to have uh, the same bike that looks the same as your, the bike your grandfather had? And my answer is usually no. Uh, so you do want like a development, you do want new things. This is good for the industry. It's good for the people to get into the sport. Can you make different uh, gear systems? Somehow the external derailleur system, it, it proved to be very good over the years. You know, uh, internal gears, they have a bit too much friction. The ceramic speed, uh, ceramic speed idea that I saw recently, it looks really cool, I have to say, and it looks, mm really you know, like a, a new take on a, a, on an old problem, meaning how mm -hmm. do you transfer the, the power, how you change gears and so on. Will it ever develop onto something useful? 
Um, I hope so. I hope so. Will it, yeah. Uh, can we do something better than what we have today? I would think it's not going to be easy. The problem with the chain drive is that it's already 98, 99%. Uh, efficient, yeah. and uh, you cannot really go more than 100% no matter what. <laughs> uh, so uh, when your you, when your room to play about it is like one percent, one or two percent uh, of uh, total improvement that you can have, there is not really that much. So I would love to see the ceramics big ceramics big uh, idea uh, in, uh, like be a new alternative. Uh, time will tell. Mm. A lot of that's yeah. still down to the ECI, isn't it? Though I mean, you know, the, the the three identifiable tubes, the straight line between points being drawn, and all that kind of thing, limits the innovation and in how the bicycle looks. I mean, you still oh, yeah, have yeah, to design yeah. a bike which essentially they want to look like Eddie Merckx rode for their record in Mexico in the sixties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to have rules. And uh, you have to control what is happening in the sport because all of a sudden you can go from a, a bicycle with uh, pedals and uh, all that. Somebody can say, oh, let's put an engine on. And then you're ending up with a motorbike. Somebody says, let's put an engine and wings. We're ending up with, uh, <laughs> with an aeroplane. <laughs> and then somebody says, let's put a rocket on. <laughs> uh, so you have to have uh, some controls and all these things. Uh, now, going back to the UCI with regards to and, uh, the ceramic speed idea, strictly speaking today, the ceramic speed idea is not allowed under the UCI rules because the rule says that the bike should be driven by a chain and a chain set. Yeah. So I hope these guys, they're going to apply to the UCI and say, the UCI to say, yes, you can, you can use it and somebody's going to make an effort to develop it because it is a nice new idea. I'm not so sure it's going to work, but at least uh, it's going to be something new and somebody will have to have a go to make it. Mm. I mean, certainly what I'm not understanding is why every single team isn't running tubeless tyres on that rebase stage. Because anyone that's ridden tubeless knows you're pretty much not going to get a flat. You can't pinch flat. It's very difficult to get an impact flat. And I'm a bit mystified that people are still on tubulars on that stage when getting a flat can just take you out of the race completely. I mean, you saw Bardet's face at the end after chasing back, chasing back. He looked like an old man, didn't he? You know, yeah, and their tyre developers, co- you know, their tyre suppliers continental. It's not as if they're using some, you know, some crappy tyre that nobody's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, they're well, good tyres. It was just plain bad luck. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's just going to happen. And certainly riding the e-bikes, sorry to keep on going on about them, but mm. the e-bikes obviously are a lot heavier than your standard bike at the moment anyway. So for off-road, you've got these big three-inch sort of plus tires, and you've got to pump them up harder than you you really want for grip. You know, you can't run an e-bike tire at 14 PSI, so you've got to double that up so you don't get a pinch flat, you know? So with e-bikes, mountain e-bikes, you've got to run tubeless, you know, no question. But they all come supplied with inner tubes, and that is what Grandad was writing, right? And I, that, for me, I think is absolutely nuts. And um, we've had tubeless technology for 20 years now off-road. But um, I was a bit, you know, just watching that, I know that people in the professional teams are all extremely bright and extremely on the, on the ball, as it were, with tech. And I'm thinking, why are we still on tubulars for this stage? 
I think it's tradition. I yeah. think uh, I found with, uh, I don't think it's only cycling, you know, every sport, uh, what is happening is you're going back to what you know best. And mm. uh, the decision makers, they always go to what they know and they used all these years and it worked for them. And uh, they will need some very strong proof that what you're suggesting as a new uh, development and so on is actually significantly better. Because mm. if it is there or thereabouts in everything else and maybe uh, a tiny bit better in one little area, uh, most people they will say, let's stick with what we know. Mm. Uh, because mm. you have like a, a, a big organization, a lot of riders, you know, mechanics, the stock of components that you have, the, the sponsors that they, you have to use the, the equipment, the sponsors they, they supply you and so on. So you really have to have a significant difference to go mm. for it. Look how long it took for the road peloton to adopt deep V-rims, you no know, aerodynamic wheels on mm. the road bikes. They were out there for quite a few years on time trials. The advantage, it was obvious, it still took the pro peloton like 15 years yeah. to start using uh, um, mm. aerodynamic wheels. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Demetrius, as in Continental. You know, you look at the um, tyre sponsor for a lot of these companies, it's Continental for good mm. reason. And Continental haven't yet released their road tubeless tyre. They've had one. They've had a GP4000S tubeless for many years. But I think the fear from them is if they release it, they encourage the tubeless market and then lose market share because they're so relatively dominant in the tubular market. Mm. It's funny, it's actually. I mean, that's where, margin, that's where the, that horrible phrase marginal gains comes from, isn't it? It's, it's the courage to make those small leaps away from tradition. Yeah. And can, can I just have a rant here, John? Because Well, just for a change. You know, just for a change. <laughs> K- I mean, Killian's certainly guilty of this. Derek's guilty of this. These are some of the other podcasters um, Demetrius John records mm. with. There's all these people now saying, oh, well, marginal gains was, was bollocks, wasn't it? We always knew it was bollocks. And no, it's not. <laughs> no, it isn't. Just because other people are, are doing one or two or three of the other things. You know, no, it makes a difference. Yeah, British Cycling and Sky, we've seen in the last few days um, on that first mountain stage, Sky are distributing the nutrition, it seems, more effectively than anyone else. On the Roubaix stage with 40 volunteers, I think there were Surveys yeah. and Arvin's mates all along the stages. The, the marginal gains, just because it's maybe not fashionable to talk about it, it, it is real and it does work. It, yeah, it, ma- it, makes, it makes a difference, absolutely. I can tell you from experience, it makes a difference. Right mm. down to the floral mosaic, so they're easy to find. Exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so, yeah, we, go on. I'm, I'm actually going to call things to a close today because, you know, during the Tour de France, there are so many podcasts that our listeners complain about not being able to keep up. Uh, I think <laughs> we've learned today that you're in the Huff was Gerard Rubin, Sean. Uh, you're not you're, not grooming himself. You're, you're, I, just, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't be rushing out buying a Cervelo. I'd, I'd be buying a, a Pinarello for sure. You're still obsessed with e-bikes and tubular tyres. No change there. And the voice of reason yeah. in the podcast has been Demetrius. Demetrius, thanks again for <laughs> thanks again for your time. It's, thanks, it's guys. Been, it's been absolutely great. Hopefully, we'll okay. catch up with you as the as the tour develops, and we'll look at uh, maybe some of the mountain tech. Although with modern bikes being so close to the cutting edge, that's you know that's a very different.
different thing from when Onse used to, you know, ship incline frames because they were lighter. You know, a modern road bike mm. essentially is is capable of handling in the mountains anyway with the UCI time limit. But uh, absolutely, uh, marginal gains, marginal gains. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely fascinating again, and we'll be back likely next week. Thanks, folks. <laughs>